0: Amen. Hi, everybody. How's it going? You know what's sad? The days are getting shorter. As of June 21st, it it always like sneaks up on me. I feel like summer just started and now they're getting shorter. So that's a great way to start off a sermon. All right. (laughs) Again, my name is Luke. We are in this series here called Dynamic Faith. The premise of this series is that when we get born again into the kingdom of God as believers, we become hardwired for faith. So that nobody can say, oh, I'm just a faithless person. Even though I'm a Christian, I just have no faith. No. Every single believer is redesigned and rewired for faith. And if we're not seeing it expressed in our lives, it's not a matter of working hard to earn it, but realizing who we are and allowing that revelation to live out of us. And Van has been kind of framing this series with a verse from Romans 1. So I to, he's read it a couple times already, but I wanted to read it again. So with your Bible or your glow-in-the-dark Bible, turn with me to Romans 1. is Paul beginning his most dense theological account of the gospel that he's written starting verse 16 for I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek 17 for in it The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. The key phrase there is from faith to faith, or as Van explained in previous sermons, out of faith into faith. Meaning that faith is not a one-time event that gets us into heaven, but a lifestyle that brings heaven to earth around us faith out of faith into faith so we're constantly growing in faith that which we are designed for and we're not ever we never kind of reach it, the pinnacle we are always going from one level of faith to another and so the angle i want to share on this morning is faith to dream faith to dream it's hard to dream in this earth, on this planet. Really? I mean if you any of you ever watch the news before? Watch the news, read, hear about all this pain and tragedy, crime, hatred. It's a pretty hard place to dream. And also, we may have had failures before in our dreams, and that makes it even harder to dream. So if there's anything we need faith for, I think we need faith to dream. And it's one thing to have our own dreams and desires and ambitions, and God created us with those. But if I've learned anything in my 26 years on this planet, it's that accomplishing our dreams starts with laying them on the altar before God and saying, God, I have these dreams I think they're from you, but more than anything, I want your dreams. And then he gives us his dreams. And out of his dreams, we see wild things accomplished through us. And one of God's dreams is that this city would be transformed by the love and power of Jesus. There's... Atheists and skeptics all over the place that are asking the question, if there is a God, why doesn't he just heal all disease? Why doesn't he just stop all suffering? Why doesn't he just end all pain? And they ask this question and a lot of people try to give them answers, but it's also hard to answer that question. Does he not want to? Is he not able to? Do you want to know why he doesn't just do that? He's given that job to somebody else. You and me. He has given us the job of destroying every work of the devil on this planet. In Romans 8, Paul says that the creation groans for the revealing of the sons of God. That means that the church of God, realizing its identity, realizing who it is, is the answer to every problem in creation. Not just death and sickness and disease and pain, but also like weather, like earthquakes. The whole creation groans for the revealing of the sons of God. And it's my dream that this city will be changed forever by what God is doing in our church and in many other churches in the city. And it's also my worst nightmare to get to the end of my life and to look at Cincinnati and see that it hadn't changed at all. I cannot accept that. I'm gonna do everything that I possibly can to see Cincinnati look more like heaven than hell while I live for this brief time on this planet. A lot of people, Christians, they've kind of adopted this mindset that, you know, the world is just hopeless. It's getting worse and worse and worse. We can't really do anything about it. Um, So let's try to snag a few people here, try to snag a few people there, and like hold on to our seat until Jesus comes. And I've been tempted to think that way before too. Like, God, when are you going to come and shake this city? But one thing that I realized recently is that We're not waiting on God to come and change Cincinnati. He's not the one who is not ready yet. He's waiting on us to do it. And so I want to give my whole life to making Cincinnati look more like heaven than hell. And I refuse to sit idly by and watch my city destroy itself under the inspiration of the enemy will I just sit back and do nothing. So that's God's dream for this city. That's my dream. I know that's a lot of people's dream in here. And if it's not, it needs to become our dream. That we're not just doing this to show up on Sunday mornings and have a party, but we want to see the city changed for the kingdom of God. So I want to read a passage out of Acts 19 where Paul walks into a city and sees it changed for the kingdom of God. So open with me to Acts 19, if you want to follow along. We're going to read about Paul's experience in Ephesus, and then I'm going to pull out seven expressions of faith that will change the world around us. So Acts 19, I'm going to read verses 1 through 8, and then paraphrase 9 through 20 starting in verse one, it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. He said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, no, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that that is, in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. They were in all about twelve men. And he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. So before I share some context and paraphrase what happens next, let's look at verse 1 again. It says this, It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. So that guy, Apollos, Luke, the author of Acts, talks about him right before this at the end of Acts 18. And Luke says that Apollos was mighty in the scriptures and Extremely passionate. So I was trying to think, who is somebody that is like this? And I was thinking, who is someone I know that's mighty in the scriptures? I'm like, Van, he's pretty mighty in the scriptures. And then I was thinking, you know, sometimes we get articulate Van up here, sometimes we get revelatory Van up here. Anybody ever seen teary-eyed, choked-up Van before? (laughs) Um, It's funny, I remember one time he was given a message on a Sunday morning and for the 9:30 service, he cried during it. And it's just so powerful. My, when van cries, those are my favorite messages that he gives. <laughs> <laughs> and so he cried and it was powerful. And then second service came along and I was sitting back there because I was in the worship band and he was getting, he was making the point that he had made in the last service that made him cry, but it kind of seemed like he wasn't going to get emotional. So I kid you not. I sat back there and prayed, God, let him cry. God, let him cry. God, let him <laughs> cry. And then he did, (laughs) and it was awesome. (laughs) So Apollos was kind of like choked up, teary eyed van, mighty in the scriptures, extremely passionate. (laughs) So Apollos, he had been in Ephesus. Then he went to another city in, he went to Corinth, which is in modern day Greece. Ephesus is in modern day Turkey. And then Paul came to Ephesus. Now about 60,000 people lived in Ephesus. It was a Greek city. And like all other Greek cities, Ephesus was full of sexual immorality and idolatry and drunkenness. Um, But what Ephesus was also known for, even more so than all of that, was witchcraft. There were tons of people that practiced magic and practiced witchcraft in Ephesus. So Paul comes to this city. And let's read again verses 2 through 4 to see who he first found, or or sorry, he first found some disciples there. We'll find out later that there was 12 of them, and this is his first interaction with them, verses 2 through 4. He said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, no, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. So these disciples in Ephesus, they were followers of Jesus. They were true followers of Jesus. But they had extremely limited understanding. In fact, all that they knew about Jesus was what John the Baptist had been saying at the beginning of the Gospels. What John the Baptist was saying is that there is a Messiah coming, and you need to turn toward God, repent, and get ready for a new world that he's bringing. And so that's all that they knew about Jesus. But what I find amazing is that they were still living out and practicing their faith, the faith that they could practice with the knowledge that they had, in spite of not knowing really, that Jesus had come, that he had been crucified, that he had been resurrected. And so the first expression of faith that I want to pull out of this is, faith that changes the city is acting on what you know. It's acting on what you do know rather than making excuses not to act because of things that you don't know. I uh, can recall growing up, I had chores every week. And one of them was cutting the grass. And my parents had 1. Um, like eight acres or so. It's not a ton, but it still took me over an hour. And I really hated cutting the grass. And so whenever I would go out and try to start the lawnmower, if I pulled it one time and it didn't start, I would just go back in and tell me, hey, something's wrong with the lawnmower. I don't know how to start it. So <laughs> can't do it. <laughs> um. Truth is, I did have some understanding about it. I could adjust the choke. Maybe someone had just been running it earlier, so I need to pull the choke back, and maybe then it'll start. Or maybe I, uh, I checked the gas, but I didn't check the oil. Maybe I need to add more oil. Whatever it is, I could have done more. Nine times out of ten, the lawnmower actually did start when my dad dragged me back out by the ear and forced <laughs> me to mow. Um, but the point I'm trying to make is that We're not called to wait until we have total and complete understanding to act for the sake of Christ. But we're called just to, whatever we do now, act on it with our whole heart in complete surrender to him. So God has given so many people in this room ideas that are going to change the world around you. And you might not have all of the understanding yet. I want to tell you, act on those things because you'll see the world around you change if you do so. Maybe it's a new business idea. Maybe it's uh, something to do in the home. Maybe it is a new ministry. Whatever it is, whatever that idea is that God is breathing, even if you don't understand it all, I encourage you, act on that thing. And what's really cool is that these 12 disciples, they were able to Because they were practicing their faith and acting on what they did know, Paul was able to recognize them and then bring them the full revelation about the baptism of Jesus. So it was in their acting on what they knew that gave them the information and the knowledge that they didn't have. So, expression one, acting on what you know. Moving on to verse five. So, Paul has explained to them the baptism of Jesus. This is what happens. Verse five. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. First uh, 12 people to learn about the gospel in Ephesus. And what would happen a couple months later is that God would start to do extraordinary miracles through Paul. Because that's what it says in the text, if you read verse 10 later, because I'm still talking right now. <laughs> um, God would do extraordinary miracles in Ephesus through Paul, so much so that used Kleenexes of his were being taken around the city and laid on people, and they were being healed. Now you really want to read it because you don't think you don't believe me. It's in there. And not only that, but so many demons were being casted out of people in Ephesus that there were these Jewish exorcists named the sons of Sceva who didn't even believe in Jesus or follow him, but they decided that they wanted to start trying out the name of Jesus to cast out demons. And so they walk up to this particular man and say, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches to come out. And well, that didn't work out so well for them because apparently they got beat up and fled the house wounded and naked is what it says in the the text. Now you really want to read it. So after that, there were thousands of people who brought millions of dollars worth of sorcery books and burned them in the middle of the city. Like that city got turned upside down for the kingdom of God. But it started with 12 people getting baptized. It only started with 12. If I told you up here that, hey, a couple of us went downtown recently and we saw 12 people that got saved, you'd be excited. We'd get like a medium-sized clap, probably. But no one would be thinking, well, that's it. The city's done for. It's going to be changed in the next couple of months. I mean, what's 12 compared to hundreds of thousands? Well, something I want to tell you is that major accomplishments in the faith always start with small acts of faithfulness. This is true in the kingdom, this is true in leadership. That when great accomplishments are made in leadership, 99 times out of 100, it's not that there was like one plan that got put into place after thinking about it for hours that totally like changed everything. It's a compilation of small wins and small acts of faithfulness that lead to great success. And so expression number two that will change a city, expression of faith, is celebrating small wins like they're big wins. I love what Bill Johnson, pastor in California, says. When talking about healing ministry, he says, if you can't celebrate the healed headache, you'll never be pulling people out of wheelchairs. And so I love that because our attitude should be when God works, even in a small way, we should be celebrating, appreciative, excited, joyful, and motivated by that small, you know, that small thing. Because it's small acts of faithfulness, consistent, disciplined, that leads to major acts of faith. Celebrating small wins like they're big wins. Paul could have been like, oh, 12, whatever. I, I saw a couple hundred at Corinth. Um, but celebrating them, I mean, heaven celebrates. Heaven throws a party. The whole place goes crazy when one person comes into the kingdom. We need to have that attitude too. Moving on to verse 6. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, this is after they got baptized, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. So I want to start this one with the expression, and I'll talk about it. Expression of faith that changes the world, number three, is expecting things to happen when you pray. We have got to expect that something's going to happen when we pray. Quick story. Last summer, I was at my parents' lake house in Tennessee with family, my immediate family, and then my dad's sister, her husband, and their kids. So my aunt and uncle and my cousins. And most of them aren't believers. And so we're there and having a good time. Then dinner comes and my cousin and his fiance, while everyone else is sitting at one table, go and sit at another table because they didn't think there was enough room. So my aunt says, hey, Josh and Tammy, why don't you guys come sit over here with us? And they're like, oh, there's not, there's not enough room over there. Like, it's cramped. It's pointless. Then someone says, do you want to be a part of this family or not? And then you guys probably know, right? Family drama just rises, <laughs> rises. And it's getting more and more intense. And so my dad, he's pretty, he thinks on his head. Uh, (laughs) He's a quick thinker, unlike me, obviously. And he says to my younger brother, Kyle, hey, Kyle, why don't you pray for us real quick? And so everyone kind of stops talking because they're not all believers, but they respect prayer. And so Kyle starts praying and I'm looking around and I'm like, this is not going to help at all. It's kind of like the lava is coming out of the volcano and it's being like stopped for a second. But when that prayer stops, it's, it's going to get crazy again. And i would never done this before, but I decided, you know what? Why don't I just pray right now? And so I started praying just peace over the dinner table. Peace in Jesus' name. Peace in Jesus' name. I start praying in tongues under my breath and just releasing peace. And you wouldn't believe it, after you got done praying, my grandmother who was there speaks up. She, had, she has some health problems. And she says, everyone, I just want to say something. Everyone's still tense, angry, but they respect grandma. So they look at grandma. And she says, I don't have many years left. And I just want to tell you all that there's nowhere I'd rather be right now than spending time with all of you. And I kid you not, the entire atmosphere in the room just shifted everyone forgot about what we were arguing about before my dad and my sister and my aunt teared up and we moved on with the dinner without any tension or arguments <laughs> and so i just love that because there's probably like how many situations are there where god wants to move but it doesn't happen because we don't pray for it now it's not to say that we make stuff happen and god doesn't god makes it happen but He's a relational God. He doesn't want to just do things for us from a distance. He wants to do things with us in close proximity. So I think a lot of times stuff could happen that doesn't simply because we don't pray for it, because we don't expect things to happen when we pray. And so I want to tell you that that in and of itself, expecting that things are going to happen when we pray will change this city. I remember... I used to not really like getting prayer so much or not super often. Sounds strange, let me tell you why. It was kind of like, I almost saw it as a burden when someone came up to me and asked me if they could pray for me or if I had any prayer requests. So I'd usually tell them, yeah, pray for this and this and they start praying and kind of just be waiting for them to get through it. Um, I'd be sitting there listening. Okay, this prayer is pretty good so far. They welcome the Holy Spirit's presence on me. But man, they're talking for a pretty long time right now. Don't they know that Gentiles offer up prayers full of long phrases? Um, Man, they're still praying. Who trained this person how to pray? I'm going to have a chat with them after this. I, I used to think kind of, maybe not quite that bad, but I used to think kind of like that. And one time during a prayer like that, I felt like God spoke to me. And he said, hey, Luke are you not excited to hear what I have to say or do you not believe I'm working in this? And I was like, there's that old familiar dagger to my heart. (laughs) God always does that, you know. I like it when he's firm with us like that sometimes because it's not like condemning or angry. It's just like, what are you doing? And so I realized, man, every time somebody prays for me, that is an opportunity for God to completely change my world if I'm open to it, if I expect that he's actually going to do something. So now whenever someone prays for me, I try my best to be like intently listening, just like so excited to hear what God has to say to me through them, and then believe that I'm going to see something happen that day. That's been my attitude recently, and I'm convinced that If we expect things to happen when we pray, we'll see God work more. Not because it's our expectation that does it, but because that's the way that God set it up for how it's supposed to happen. It's supposed to be relational, him doing it with us. And when Paul laid his hands upon these 12, stuff happened. So, moving on then to verse 6. Or sorry, we're still in verse 6, but looking at the second half of it. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them and They began speaking with tongues and prophesying. So, the Holy Spirit impacting people in supernatural, tangible ways was evident from the very beginning of this revival at Ephesus. And it just shows the importance of power ministry for the church to change the city. I love what Van says often. When talking about Holy Spirit ministry or seeing the power of God impact people in the now, he says Holy Spirit ministry must be the tip of the spear. And what that means is that it's not all that we do, but it is evident in, at the forefront in everything that we do. That we're going to put on events for, for our non-Christian friends. We're going to feed the poor. We're going to do Bible studies, but at the forefront of each of those is going to be the power of the Holy Spirit. Always has to be there. It's the power of God that changes things. I told you about the dinner table story last year. What I didn't tell you is that my cousin Nick, who was not a believer at the time, um, asked me to come outside with him that night while he smoked a cigarette. So I went out there with him, and I'm not a smoker, but I had a cigarette with him. And we're just sitting there talking, and he starts to open up to me about some stuff. and He starts to tell me um, just some stuff he was going through. And he's sharing, he's sharing, and he's sharing. I keep just listening and listening. He's going deeper and deeper. And then he gets to a point where he tells me that recently he had seen a medium. And so that piqued my interest. And the story he told me is this. He said, Luke... A couple of months ago, I went to this supposedly haunted house that was abandoned. And I brought with me this like ghost detector I'd bought online, <laughs> I guess. And it's like, I didn't believe any of it, but I just was going there for fun with some friends. And so we went in there and we were walking around. I got to this particular room and I boop, did whatever the thing, the ghost detector was. And the name John came up on the screen. And so I was like, oh, that's funny. Um, whatever. And didn't think anything of it. But when he left the house, from that point on, he told me that there was, he started to experience this strange sensation where he always felt like he was being watched. And he was never at peace because of it. And then he told me that because of that, it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And so he decided to go see a medium. And the medium said a number of things that seemed to be pretty accurate to his situation. And he said, okay, that's kind of strange. That's weird. Then the medium, right before he left, said, also, I see that there's a man named John who's been following you around. And that freaked him out. So he left that meeting more scared than ever, less peace than ever. He still felt like he was being watched, but it was worse now. And then he started to describe to me that when he would be sitting just, or anywhere, randomly, everything around him would like enlarge to supersize in his perception. It's so like he'd be watching TV and the TV would like enlarge to the size of the wall. And the couch next to him would look like a truck. And he didn't know why it was happening. And it was really, really freaking him out. And so the whole time he kept asking me, like, is this weird? Like, are you, are you comfortable with me sharing this with you? And I think the very fact that I wasn't ever weirded out really made it a safe place for him to share this stuff. I was like, no, I believe in, supernatural, in the supernatural. And so he was just telling me about how the only way he could get that item enlarging perception to stop would be to use drugs and drink. And he was just descending into this like pit of despair. So I looked at him and I said, Hey, Nick, if you let me pray for you, God will totally remove all of that right now. And he's like, really? I'm like through prayer. I'm like, yeah. He like thought he didn't think prayer could do anything. Yeah, if you let me pray for you, you'll be free from all of that. And so he's like, well, I guess you can pray for me. It was kind of like awkward still. I think it was more so the intimacy of me praying for him. But I walked up to him, laid my hand on his shoulder, never prayed for him before, never had any kind of spiritual experience with him before. And I said, Holy Spirit, I welcome your presence. And immediately the Holy Spirit came on him. I could just see that he was experiencing peace and the lifting off of a burden. So I prayed a short prayer, then asked him, hey, like, um, how are you feeling? He said, dude, like, I don't know what you just did, but I have peace, I haven't felt peace in months. I feel like a weight came off of me, I feel free. And I was like, that's awesome, man. But then he said, I still feel like I'm being watched. Like, I feel peace in this space. But he pointed at this window across the way, at this other lake house that was still being built. And he's like, I think there's someone in there watching me right now. And so this kind of came to me in the moment. I said, I'm gonna pray again. Say, okay. And I said, Father, I ask in Jesus' name that you release your angels around this place and that you drive out anything of the enemy. And I kid you not, when I prayed that, it was like the whole area around us just got quieter. And Nick looked at me. He was like, dude, did you like, hear the bugs stop, start chirping not as loud? And I was like, yeah, it's crazy. It, like, everything got quieter. And then I told him, uh, how are you feeling now? I was like, dude, I don't feel like anyone's watching me now. I feel safe. I haven't felt safe in forever. And a number of other things happened. But long story short, he gave his life to Jesus that night. <laughs> Expression number four that will change the city around us, engaging in supernatural ministry. I want to tell you all something. I could have sat there and been the best listener ever. I could have encouraged him. I could have offered to pay for his gas on the way home. I could have told him that I'd be free any time for him to talk. Could have done all of those things. And those things are great. And I'm going to keep doing them. But what he needed was the power of the Holy Spirit to be set free. What this city needs is the power of the Holy Spirit to be set free. We're going to do all that other stuff. All that other stuff is amazing. But people need real life-changing power in this moment. And they need to see that God is not a distant idea, but a powerful agent that can operate in their lives. And what's amazing is that we get to be the ones that tell them that and demonstrate that to them. So when Paul, wherever Paul went, he did a lot of stuff. Supernatural ministry was, was at the front and was the key. Moving on into verse seven. This is where we find out there were in all about 12 men. So, I want to go through this one really quickly. But when Peter preached the gospel in Jerusalem, how many people accepted Jesus? 3,000. When Paul comes to Ephesus and he preaches the gospel, only 12 come to faith. It could have been easy for Paul to compare his experience to Peter's experience and then come to the conclusion that there wasn't going to be a major revival in Ephesus. So expression number five is this. That which will change a city is not comparing to others to determine your own success. Going to verse eight. So this is after Paul has baptized and prayed for the twelve disciples in Ephesus. And he entered the synagogue... And continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. I love this. Paul preached the kingdom of God and never changed the subject. And I want to be like that too. I oftentimes, or not often, but a couple of times there have been people who have come up to me and said, Hey Luke, I love the ministry that's happening here at Vineyard Northwest. I love all the stories. It's awesome to see God impacting the city. But... I feel like you guys tell stories too much, and it's starting to feel self-glorifying to me, almost like you're bragging at the things that you can do. And it just makes me feel uncomfortable. And there is validity in that view, in that if we ever become more passionate and excited about the gifts than the giver, we are seriously um, misled. But after recognizing the valid viewpoint there, I bring another valid viewpoint, which is this. We can never apologize for celebrating the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. We can never apologize for that. When Jesus sent out the 70 in Luke 10, he said, heal the sick, cast out the demons and proclaim what has come to you. Did he say Proclaim that this thing that happens every once in a while but shouldn't get focused on has come to you? No. He said, heal their sick, cast out demons, and proclaim the kingdom of God has come to you. Healing, deliverance, salvation, prophetic is evidence that the kingdom of God is advancing. And we can never stop celebrating that. Because it is the kingdom, that's our job. Is to see the kingdom of God advance and the city look more like heaven than hell. So I don't know if I said it already or not, but Expression 6 never ceasing to celebrate the breaking in of the kingdom of God. I told you earlier about the sons of Sceva and how they tried to cast out demons by the Jesus that Paul proclaimed. And I want to show you how the demon responded to them when they said that, because I think it's profound. So we're just going to, read, we're going to skip ahead to verse 15. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus and I know about Paul, but who are you? I recognize Jesus and I know about Paul. Paul was known by the enemy in that city. Now, I want to tell you all, It is what I want is to be known in heaven and feared in hell. I want to be known in heaven and feared in hell. I want the enemy every morning to be terrified when I open my eyes. What's he going to do today? How is he going to change people's lives today? How can we stop him? What can we throw at him? Nothing is seeming to work. That's where I want to be. And I want to suggest to you that when we go out in public, in Kroger, in Target, a group of us went down to the gay pride rally this past weekend. When we go out in public and we feel like God puts on our heart to interact with someone and we experience fear, I want to suggest to you that it's not our fear. That fear that we're feeling is actually the enemy's fear around us, terrified at what we might do in the next 10 minutes. I want to be known in heaven and feared in hell. It's my dream that we would see this city shaken under the power of God. Like I know no one reads newspapers anymore, but I want to see newspaper headlines that say, what in the world is happening in Cincinnati? (laughs) (laughs) I want to see sky. (laughs) I want to see skyscrapers being built that, Up on the top of it, on big white letters says, on earth as it is in heaven. Every time people drive down 75 uh, north, when they turn the bend and see the city, first thing they see, man, what this city is about is on earth as it is in heaven. I want to go out in Walmart and have someone come up and pray for me that I don't know. The whole creation is waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. That's us. Women, you have to be sons, but guys have to be the bride, so it kind of evens out. (laughs) Jesus, give us faith to change Cincinnati. We are not satisfied with the fact that it looks more like hell right now than heaven we proclaim and declare that we will do everything that we can whatever it takes to see cincinnati be a place where it is on earth as it is in heaven in jesus name amen that's all i have thanks guys